Hi, my name is Jeff D'Angelo. Welcome to the Just Build It podcast. This is our first of a series of podcasts where we really focus on interviewing technologists, founders, entrepreneurs, and builders of companies and technology to show what the future and vision of logistics and supply chain is. And since this is the first podcast that we're doing, it's probably a good idea for me as the host to introduce myself. My name is Jeff D'Angelo. I've spent 20 years in logistics and supply chain. I am from Cincinnati, Ohio. I lived in the Bay Area for about six years building a technology platform. And my passions are, if you see in the background, I've got golf. Golf is one of my big passions. But the other one that we're going to talk about a lot over this podcast is around technology and how technology can influence sort of any sort of industry like logistics and supply chain, which is also my background. And some of the guests that we're going to have on have tremendous experience in this space, logistics, technology, supply chain, etc. And the first one we're going to have on, his name is Steven Ruggiero. So Steven is an entrepreneur. He's a founder of companies. And And we're going to talk to him a little bit today about how to sell your freight brokerage business. And let me welcome Stephen to the show. Stephen, are you there? Yeah. Thank you for having me, Jeff. Awesome. So Stephen, the audience would love to know all about Stephen and just maybe give us an overview of you and where you're from and and what got you into sort of the logistics space. Sure. I've been in the logistics space now about 25 years and... um, when I first got out of college, my first job was working for a trucking company as a dispatcher. And, and, and in those days, what had happened is the dot-com boom and where a lot of you know websites and all that were created and people who started shipping over the internet. It was one of the first times to start doing it. So I applied for a company called Freightquote.com. And, uh, and they, I remember in my interview, they were saying, we built this really great website and you can ship over the internet, you know, truckloads of freight, LTL, and, and but no one's using it. So, you know, coming from the ground floor of more of the blue collar end of it from a trucking company, but I always had a fascination with computers and electronics as I was my minor in college. And uh, I put the two together and I was like, this is awesome. And what, and Stephen, what year was that? Uh, 1998, I want to say. Wow. And talk to us about websites. Like there probably weren't a lot of websites even out there. I'm assuming that it was sort of new to the industry. Yeah, it it was new because uh, I remember when I looked compared because freightquote.com was the name of the company. And uh, when I interviewed, there was no other companies doing it. But somehow it just made sense. You know, uh, growing up in uh, that type of background, my father owned a small trucking company. And uh, then I went to work for a trucking company. And you could just, and then you would see all these different websites being brought up. And I remember when eBay first came out, they they had all this product. But they were only doing, I think, like $5,000 a week because they couldn't figure out how to ship it. And uh, early on, that was one of the projects I think they worked on, and I was able to be a part of that. It was just fascinating for to keep evolving from that over the years. And so, when you started with Freightquote, what was your first role there? I was hired as a entry level salesperson, and the first three years, I was their top salesperson. And uh, and then I evolved uh, when we evolved into more larger platforms like Truckload. I was one of the few people who had experience and understood it. And they said, "Hey, would you like to?" apply for this and I did and I was awarded the position and I built their truckload department from oh maybe doing I would say a few thousand a week to almost I think we're at each month doing about 20 million when I decided to leave it grew quite well 
And so back then there were probably way less brokerages back in the late 90s, early 2000s than there are today. I think the number is over 17,000 freight brokerage companies today. And I remember when, you know, I I joined a really small freight brokerage back then as well. Uh, We would call shippers and say, hey, we're a freight brokerage company. And freight brokerage was really a bad name back then. So tell me about and tell the audience about what it was like going into a shipper and saying, we're this technology company, this website that you're going to have to trust putting your freight on this technology board uh, when when they were so used to talking to people. So I remember when I first got there as an entry-level sales rep, they, even though it was a dot-com, they handed me a phone book and said, here's your leads. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I just literally would like scroll through and be like, oh, uh, this distributor makes shipping or makes metal and calling companies like that. But when I would call them, it was interesting. They would be like, no, I'm not giving you any information on the internet. You're going to stalk me or you're going to steal my information. Almost to the point where how it evolved was it was different because I remember when they first came up with online banking and I was like, this is great. I love to change my life, took all the paperwork out. And once I started explaining it that way and people started to adopt it. And then once they started using it, they were hooked. It was just so much easier than the traditional, all right, let me call you back, see if I have a truck availability and things of that nature that they more process was very tedious just to do just to do one transaction could sometimes take an hour and now you could do it within minutes so that's awesome and so what how long were you at freight i believe i was there six years i want to say six years yeah what happened to that business because i don't think it's around anymore right it's uh did they get acquired yeah i think that i came back later on as their vp of truckload sales about six seven years after i left because i started another company and um when i come back they had evolved to doing quite large actually to uh, doing 60 million in truckload and um, but what happened to them is they eventually ch robinson i think is the largest brokerage in the world had acquired them and now they work under their umbrella and uh, you know uh, get absorbed and so for for you as this person that came from trucking and now you're coming into this sort of technology company from there where did you go did you decide that you wanted to get back into technology or where did you go from there? Great question. Uh, for me, it was more about realizing an opportunity and I mean, Freakwell gave me such a great education. And, and when I just thought that there are some processes that you can do with a little bit of technology, leverage that with a little bit of, um, you know, your brow sweat and accomplish things. So, and that's what I did. I took little bits of here and there of different technologies and plugged them into a process and to my own businesses. And it, and it worked very well. And um, eventually you wound up building a system where we could train other dispatchers, freight brokers to work within the company. And what was that that company that you founded was what? What was the name of the company? Yeah, so what was the name of your company so you can let the viewers know? AOK Freight. AOK Freight. Now, and why why did you decide to start your own business versus going out to work for someone else? For me, I'm not always the best fit for corporate life. <laughs> I am Italian and I tend to be opinionated. So, that always is a, is a great environment and you know, and I wanted to be happy i was willing to make uh, for myself i thought in my head i was like i can do this i'm a driven person by nature and and it just it just clicked it was just one that i was tailor-made for and that i controlled my own fate it just evolved into something that 
really I can become passionate about because every day in this in this world even today is never the same there's always a challenge of solving a puzzle and when you do it's it's almost like a perfect perfect um, like a maestro with the, with their orchestra what works is great and the the uh, what most people don't know uh, Stephen if you can see him on the camera you can see that obviously he's this bald attractive man <laughs> um, but he's also a very large man so yes I am so talk about your football career for a second before we get into AOK Freight. Sure. Uh, I'm dating myself, but when I graduated high school, I was a high school American football player. I was an offensive lineman. And at that time, you know, being six foot five and 300 pounds is, was a rarity. And um, so I was uh, recruited by all the major Division One schools and things of that nature. And I went to college and I did well and had um, played a brief stint in professional. wasn't wasn't quite good enough to stay. But um, you know, to this day, you know, I still enjoy working out, things like that. So I'm still a large man, just a lot older. <laughs> so. And so I, I want to go back to the title again. How to sell your freight brokerage business. Sure. And um, so Stephen started AOK. Maybe walk us through the the journey of sort of building AOK. And there's a for the audience that knows brokerage and those that don't, there are several types of models that are out there. There's different operational models like a, a TQL, Total Quality Logistics, might have what we call cradle to grave model operationally. C.H. Robinson has what they call the Chicago model, which is carrier sales, customer sales. And then you've got this super interesting other models that are out there as well, along with how to use technology to create automation in each of those models and every company is different. So walk us through what you decided to do for AOK and then how that affected potentially how you wanted the vision of you know, sort of taking AOK to where you wanted to go and then where you are today. Well, initially when we first started, what I adopted was I would literally take other people who would want to be in the industry and a lot of them just didn't know how. So I, I realized that, okay, I go sit next to me, watch what I do mm. and, you know, and explain everything in detail because when, you know, there's no real good brochure for being a freight broker or dispatcher or carrier sales, what have you. So when they watch me do it over and over and over, they started getting comfortable and I would train one person and I would train two, then three. But then the issue that AOK ran into, you know, every brokerage has their own way of doing things as in processes. You know, we evolved in that we started to look for leverage in that we were so small at the time, we couldn't afford, you know, high-priced salespeople because we were a small company. So what I decided to do is I started looking, you know, to outsource and I found people that did have some experience and I flew to many countries, uh, Honduras, Colombia, to name a few. And I literally took that same model that we used in the United States and started training people there. And with technology being what it is, you know, it's literally, you know, they're in a room together on a virtual field working hand in hand. So it worked out pretty well for us. And the best example of it is when the pandemic hit. Mm. A lot of brokerages were had the offices full of hundreds, thousands of people. We only had six people in our office, but we had 30 people abroad wow. and they were safe. And it actually gave us a little bit more market share. Wow. That's awesome. And 
What what most people don't realize is right now a lot of folks in this industry are nearshoring their sort of their teams. So there's a large company in Colombia now in other countries called Lean, and Lean has you know five six thousand people now just focused on the logistics industry. So a lot of the the companies are starting to really nearshore and outsource to those type of companies. What the listeners should understand about Stephen's story, in my opinion, is. Stephen was one of the first. So like his vision and sort of thought of innovation to to nearshore and say, hey, there's a lot of sort of things we can do to use talents that's offshore to help us drive the cost per transaction down, right, Stephen, where your customers, you might be able to compete now against anyone because of your cost structure is just completely different. So maybe maybe talk about that a little bit. That's a great point. And when you're starting out in typical freight brokerages, you know, if you don't have contracts in hand from a major vendor, well, then you have to be able to compete with people uh, that are loads are already available. And your cost per transaction is a key factor. So yes, we did near shore, but we didn't sacrifice on quality because when I made the trips over, I would spend two weeks, three weeks, sometimes a month, and go through every process. And over time, the beauty of this process, and I think a lot of dispatchers and people benefit from it, the repetitiveness, you start seeing patterns, you start learning more, the, the lingo, the processes of all these different companies. So when we were able to do that, a lot of that really just evolved into us expanding even more around the, around the world. But the issue with lean staffing, I wish I had built the model he had <laughs> and because it just expanded like a, a thousand fold. So mm. it's, it's quite exciting. Yeah, it is. And, and so as you started taking the company and growing the company with this offshore team, I guess, why did you decide to think about selling AOK? What was the compelling event that you were like, hey, it's time to start thinking about this? When I turned 50, and it was a decision for me because the business as itself is one that when you're a smaller 3PL like I was, you know, it's sometimes, you know, making sure everything goes right because we were able to manage a lot of people with a small management group. We only had three to four managers and the rest were under that umbrella. And part of that was great. We had, you know, great margins, you know, we made a lot of money. That's great. But the day-to-day kind of wears on you. And as I was getting older, I had to ask myself, do I want to keep this pace? And when you're in your 20s and 30s, it's it's a walk in the park. But um, I always attribute it to saying, like when an athlete starts to think about, okay, am I as fast as I used to be? Mm. Am I able to keep? And for me, the big part was technology. It wasn't that I couldn't keep up, but the technology portion has evolved to people like yourself, Jeff, who are on the next frontier, you know, and, and you have to be able to accept that. And I did, and I was like, I should be get out in front of it than rather wait before I get past. And for me, when I decided to sell, I wanted to look for companies that were tech enabled, that were going to be the evolution of the next step. So that was a real factor for me. And yes, there is, you know, obviously compensation, setting up your future. Those are all relevant, but you know, the big, the initial thing for me was realizing okay, 
I developed all these cool little innovating processes, but now those are baby steps. Now people have surpassed that, you know, 10 times over. And always staying in front of that takes a lot of time and research and due diligence. And the, and the for me, that was just, it's too labor intensive to stay in front of it because the market was growing so fast and technology is growing exponentially. It's next to impossible to evolve that fast, especially if you do not have a, a, a large management team like we did not. And, and so there's a lot of talk around the technology community about products like ChatGPT and AI and how it's impacting our abilities to make decisions faster, our ability to automate a lot of human sort of at least basic work. And a lot of people believe a relationship's not there uh, or, or relationships are still going to be there forever. I guess in your sense, there were probably several options to sell your company right? Why, I guess, what were the different options that you were thinking through, whether it was private equity, it was a competitor strategic, like what were the different options? And so how did you choose the right one? We were approached with a lot of offers and many were traditional. We're going to, we want to purchase your brokerage, you know, fold it into our, our, you know, our business, our our book of business. And more or less do it their way, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. And there were options for venture capital groups that look at it because 3PLs often, as we know, scale fast and they're attractive. And and then they were just, they wanted to buy the product and just, you know, put it in their book. But the technology portion was the one I was key on out of all the offers. And I remember when Fuhrer came along and I met the CEO, Phil, that was a big sell for me because he had shown me some technology and I was like, that's where it's going. I go, that's that's the frontier. And it was for me, it was it was attractive because it's like handing the baton off to someone I know that can make it better. You know, so that was a big part of when all those offers came in, this and that. I mean, all of them around the same offer number, if you will, as far as uh, you know, to to sell. But if you can set your company up for your staff as well to evolve with it, so they get better and they're learning the new frontier. That was another big decision as well for me because I knew when that happens is that they're going to be involved how I was involved at Freequote. And I, I learned so much. I was like, this is amazing to be around the, that that technology, those people. You learn a lot. So if you want to stay relevant in your career, that's also part of it too, to think about your staff is, you know, what are you actually pushing them towards? You know, are they going to be within a company that they're, they're just going to be absorbed or are they going to have a chance to get better? Well, this was a chance also to get better. So Stephen, that's a great point about just the team in general learning. When I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs and founders who set up companies and, and want an exit and an exit might mean they go public an exit might mean they sell their company. They're usually trying to look for that financial exit, right? But most of the freight brokerage CEOs and founders that I meet also want to make sure that the people that have helped them build this company go somewhere where they'll either keep their jobs, right, which is one, or and or grow, right, in terms of understanding the business, understanding the technology, being a part of something that's maybe bigger than what they were a part of before. So, Stephen, can you tell us a little bit about that decision matrix and why you decided to do what you did versus going with a private equity firm? I think when you are a business owner and probably any business, I think some of it, when you have people that work for you for a while, and I think AOK was a decade old, and uh, you develop relationships, you know, you know their family, things like that. And um, 
we were pretty involved in that with our company. So I think when that happens for, I'll just speak for myself, it was, okay, I need to think like a parent here and be like, mm. if I'm going, because I've been taking care of, I'm the one that pays all the bills and pays my staff, you know, at the end of the day, how, am I setting them up for success right. in the future? Or am I just trying to cash out? Those are things that always weigh on you. So when options came about for me, it was more about, okay, I remember I looked back when I was young and I, I had hair <laughs> and uh, that I would uh, be, had that opportunity that I was blessed with to learn those things from key people. I wanted to surround them with what I thought would, could be the best opportunity for them as well. Right. Um, and, and there were so many brokers that were just like, oh, you know, we'll take your staff. And, you know, and, and when I would ask, well, you know, what is going well, we'll probably just absorb them in and see how they perform. No real guarantees. But I mean, for example, like uh, I sold to Fura and it's been over a year and our staff is still intact. So I feel good about that. And, you know, they're adopting the new technology. It's new. It's scary for a lot of people, but, you know, uh, it's uh, it's working. So I feel that when you're going in those directions, you need to really kind of look at all the angles like, oh, hey, it's not just about me. Uh, who am I affecting? I'm like, am I giving them the, the best opportunity if I'm going to hand the reins over to someone else for them to evolve with that company as well? To be successful. And and you mentioned the name Fura. Fura is the company that acquired Steven's company, AOK Freight. And I guess maybe a little bit deeper into why you decided on Fura across the board so you talked about technology you talked about the people being having a place to grow and develop i guess why else did you choose that organization to go along with i'll give you an example i was having dinner the other day and i actually called to make reservations for uh, myself and another person and i remember i was talking to make the reservations and this and that and i made them and then i got a text after saying your appointment your and it was totally human sounding and I had no idea. And I got a text after, oh, you have been confirmed by, you know, uh, Roberta, our, our bot making a rest. I was like, I just, that wasn't, that wasn't real. So it literally wasn't. But the key point of what I'm trying to say here is that Phil, when he gave me a demo of some technology they were working on, you know, almost, this was before we even did the deal, like 18 months prior, that showed me that and how that's going to evolve and part of what they're doing. And I was like, oh my goodness. I was like, and I was like, that's, you're right. Because a lot of those automated, simple tasks to do more volume, you know, be more efficient. That's a big part of the technology play. That's just one angle of it. And, um, and when I sold the Fura to make sure that people who understood the technology was cool and that you could see that they understood the industry as a whole but they also understood where the industry is probably going to go and you have to be when you're talking to them for me it was like okay because the management at Fury is relatively young compared to myself anyway but they got it they knew every terminology they knew the technology that term it was just it was it was a fit because you know um, learning where from them was on what they're trying to do is pretty is it's it's the next evolution. It's the next phase of logistics. Mm. I remember when I started Stephen in the brokerage world in just in 2001, I believe 2002. A little company called TQL at the time. We had about 30 employees. We didn't have a TMS. You know, we had we had paper trays that we used. And to see this industry develop, a lot of it actually has developed way slower than I think we're all accustomed to in the consumer world because. You know, there's a lot of money to be made in this industry and a lot of humans think that technology will replace them instead of help them. And so I think 
we're just at the cusp of seeing some of these technologies really come to life and make an impact in this industry. So, you know, very, very interesting foresight you had on both the the nearshoring concept as well as, you know, thinking through selecting a, a company that has, a, it's actually a technology company that buys research companies. So as part of the process, as, as part of the acquisition process, how did you determine the value of your freight brokerage before selling it? The value is, you know, figured out the EBITDA um, through a multiple. And the multiple, when, when I did my research on it, you can, I think every entrepreneur, especially in 3PL, you start looking at where is it going? Where is it going to be? And I had felt that it was as far as to be at a point to sell to get the maximum value is where it was as far as uh, getting an equity multiple, you know, a times EBITDA. And we came up with the number. I remember uh, Phil presented to me and it was the number I wanted to be at. I didn't have to negotiate hard. It was very easy and I was happy with it. And we structured a deal that was the best fit for not only me, but it was also for the company. Yeah. And, and one of the most interesting things over the past couple of years, last year at this time, multiples were probably a little bit inflated in terms of you know where the industry is and they've kind of come back down. But what most owners don't realize in this industry, and maybe I'd love for you to comment on this, is you have investment bankers or, or bankers that are trying to get deals done on the buy or on the sell side. So they might represent a CEO or a founder of a brokerage company, and they say, "Hey, I'll get you X multiple if you work with me to sell your business," because they get paid. So they're not using necessarily data to tell them these things. They're trying to get the business. The same thing goes with business brokers who are trying to get the deal done. So a lot of them will overinflate their, you know, their multiple. And then I guess comment on this in terms of like, how did you work through some of those conversations and then also work with um, the Fura team on sort of getting to the right place and ensuring that you knew what the exact number should be? It was when they came to me with the offer, it was detailed. I, I had actually, because I've only sold, I think one other, two other companies prior, but very small. So I hired a business broker and, um, in some ways it was great. It was, you know, someone kind of holding my hand, if you will, but it's also very expensive. <laughs> so, but, and I, you know, I wouldn't say I regret it because it did get me where I needed to be. It just was, you know, I didn't quite have the knowledge enough of selling, you know, merger and acquisitions and selling companies that I, I should have. So and I think when I was exiting and that was necessary because when negotiating with Fura, it was outlined line by line. This is why, you know, you were at this number. This is why. So going through that process was actually an education for me and that learning that, oh, okay. You know, I mean, I knew the number on my target, but I, I, I wouldn't say I was an expert. I had to have mm -hmm. someone really explain it to me. And for, and that was the perk of the biggest perk of having that business broker is he walked me through it. And then also Fura walked me through it and came up with their number. And I was like, okay. And then working through all the, the fine details of, you know, how long will the deal be? What will, you know, all those little, the second bite at the apple, things of that nature, you know, is the, are those things possibilities? All those discussions were, were open and, um, pretty transparent and as it had evolved it, it worked out for everybody and and what sort of mistakes if you had to do it all over again what are some things that you would have avoided or done differently as part of the process 
Well, uh, let me see. That's a that's a really good question. I think as far as for myself at the point, I'd wish I had done a little more due diligence on picking a business broker. Not that I didn't like my business broker. He mm-hmm. was very good. It was like uh, kind of what you mentioned. A lot of them were like, oh, yeah, give me, I'll, I'll get you, a, you know, a 6X and, or 8X. And I was like, well, how are you going to do that? Well, just sign the contract. <laughs> and I just wasn't comfortable doing that. So I going through that process that was very uh, that was the probably the most difficult part and then when selling the company you know what i regret i we were one that because we had so many didn't have enough managers to do as far as we wish we were more let's see better acclimated for the process when we went through it we i had people on staff that were not you know tax experts and things like that so those are things for myself that making sure i wish i'd educated myself better Mm. because it's it's a large number that you're talking about and the more educated you are on it the better for you once that deal is done because whether you are going to pay 30 percent in taxes or you're going to pay a business broker you know 10 percent of the the annual of the total deal those things are a big deal when you're trying to put yourself in a position to where hopefully you're comfortable for the rest of your days right and and how did you work through talk to the audience a little bit about the negotiations and how did you work through those terms like what was the what were the the challenges of it or were the the interesting or good things about the the sort of the sale or the um the process because if i'm a if i'm a freight broker trying to sell my business i'd really want to understand is it difficult is it hard is it a long process is it smooth etc i think yeah you have to be prepared to for a three to six month you know, due diligence type process, depending on how large you are. We were, we weren't a huge company. I think we were 20, 25 million in that range. So as far as the scale of brokerages, you know, maybe middle of the pack, a little lower probably, but relevant. So I think when you choose that, you really have to start thinking about, okay, how, how am I going to approach what my future is after this how long will this take you have to be comfortable with the fact that it just takes time yeah. and be patient with it i had to, i had a tough time with that i was like well it's worth this you know and i want this and, you know it's not you have it's a lot more detailed because when you're talking that many zeros or whatever what have you is that it's better in the long run to be detailed to say okay what happens if this happens and what happens if that happens it's lined out all on the agreement and you have many meetings that you have to take the time to do that you know i'll be honest i didn't enjoy it um, because i'm more of a blue collar day-to-day details are probably not my best attribute so um those are things that you should expect and be able to just go with it learn from it you know it's it's like a little bit like working out you don't want to but you have to <laughs> and, and when you do it you know at the end result if you're doing the older we get right steven <laughs> <laughs> yes yes uh, i think the other day uh what was i think you did joke with me you're like you said oh you're a big 300 pound and i said well 300 pound i still bench press 405 so yeah and then i, I stopped <laughs> then i stopped i stopped giving you hell about it <laughs> And I joke back, and I think I said, "Yeah, body built by Burger King." I still don't. Hey, eat right that's now. right. That's right. For those for those that are listening and don't know Stephen, um, you definitely want him to be your friend and not your enemy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I go back to Boston. And I get phone call. Oh, you're in town. Let's go out. Okay. All right. Yeah, yeah. Let's. Uh, yeah. Let me start. Let me start something with someone down yeah, the hall, yeah, and you can back that's it up. True. 
Um, yeah, big old Italian. So we're coming up close to the end. I think one thing that our audience, especially those that were were uh, are interested in this uh, in this podcast around how how to sell a freight brokerage business, it's not just the deal, right? It's it's the transition. Yeah, it's, it's the transition afterwards. Can you talk about yeah. your experience in the transition, and then what should you know the audience understand about the do's and don'ts, or the challenges, or the things that they should think through even before they sell the company? Yeah, I think that for, I'm going to give some personal experience here. In that, when I sold, I think owners need to realize that. Think about it when, as uh, like you see, it's because it's popular on TV when an athlete retires, their identity is taken away. You're no longer the CEO. You're no longer the the boss or controlling everything, and that that is a struggle you have to be prepared prepared for. I struggled with it, and you know, but I will tell you that you know, Fuhrer was very patient and understanding because I was like, well, I was like, wait a minute, I'm not. What am I doing? And you know, and really give thoughts about your next your next phase, what you want to do. Do you want to stay with the company? Do you want to work out an exit? Do you want a small role? I think when you're in negotiating those things, you talk about them openly because when that happens, I was lucky enough, for instance, that my voice was heard. You know, whenever I was unhappy or needed to talk to someone, they listened. You know, and and I think when you're on that end of it, when you're in negotiations, start thinking about the little things that you haven't thought of because it's you can get caught up and yes, it's a big number and that's great, and but you're if, if you're you know whether you're 40, 50, 60, you or you know even older, you still have life left, and this has been your identity for so long, and uh, something your baby, you have to feel you know, ready to let someone else control it and work with you and just, you know, and just be able to deal with that. Because I think that's the toughest part for a lot of owners. It's like, okay, what am I now? So, and I think that whether people just sell them because maybe they want to make just money or, but I don't think that's the case for a lot of people. I think most of it is more about, you know, selling, making their money, but also being able to put it somewhere where they feel good about um, every person I, I have multiple friends that have built companies and sold them in this industry. And that's their number one question. It's like, they ask me, Steven, you know, what's going to happen to me? I'm like, well, ask them. I mean, what do you want to do? I mean, some people just want to play golf and go off in the sunset and sit on a beach. Yeah. You know, for me, that's an amazing, I want to stay in it and, and work. Do I want to work as hard as I used to? No, but, but I, I do enjoy transportation. I, I really enjoy the challenge of it. And I like passing on to the new generation of when we have younger staff to, to learn from me and to evolve and just watch them get better. Yeah. You know, uh, it, when I think about the brokerage industry, and by the way, amazing sort of insight there. When I think about the brokerage industry, 80% of brokers do less than you know, $20 million in, in top line revenue. And so there's a big, you know, a big opportunity for those leaders and those, those founders to sell their businesses. And a lot of those founders are young. Like you said, they could be in their thirties or forties or fifties or a little older. And they are, again, their identity, like you said, is all about this business and it's been their life. And I'm assuming most of them have bootstrapped the company. They've taken all the financial leverage or the, the sort of, they own the debt. Basically they had to sign up for those, those terms with banks. 
and it's super stressful. And now all of a sudden, all the people and all the, the things about the business are not necessarily theirs. And, and I think it's great insight to say that first year is difficult because you really have to help that new entity make the transition so your people are happier, right? So your people earn trust and they're all sort of a part of that business. But also for you is what makes you happy beyond being the center of this world because you're not necessarily the center of the world anymore. Um, many founders that I talk to, that's why you know they sit out for a couple of years and they go start a new one because they just, they miss that part of it. But at the same time, they want to have this exit. So I think thinking through what makes them happy is amazing insight to our audience to say, you know, some of, you know, for you, your, your superpower is building, you know, carrier, uh, carrier sales teams and development. And that's, you know, maybe talk a little bit about that for the audience is what you decided to do once you joined Fura. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I want to add to a little bit of this and that I think that when, when you get to that point of when you're thinking about selling, I want to add to one of the decisions for me is the investment part of it in your company. So I had to make, I remember when I was looking back, when I was, you know, seeing how everything was involved in these TMS systems, you know, some of them were 10,000, some of them were a hundred thousand dollars. And when, and the decision between selling and reinvesting and which we could afford to do, but we would have to hire twice the management staff to get to that next level. I want to make that point because that was a, a big factor too. I mean, like, do I, really, and that's another, you know, when you factor everything you build from day one, and then you look at this, you're like, well, that's another two years of real blood sweat to get it to the next level. And there's no guarantee in that. So, and the cost of that is extreme. So when I was leveraging the two, you know, where I'm at, am I going to be able to keep up with Uber technologies and Freyquote um, based on what I'm doing? I'm like, I don't think it'll be very difficult to do. And, and it's not just me. So when Fura came, it was more like, okay, they do have technology cutting edge that's coming that can compete and I don't have to reinvest and I can do all these other things. Wow. I want to make sure I explain that out because I think when owners look at that stuff, you know, they're like, when you hit, you become relevant. I think when you get to that 10, 20 million, you're like, okay, you, you start to make a, you know a good living. And then, but to keep up is, is always the challenge. And it evolved the last five years of the company 10 times faster than it's ever have. So it was like, it's coming and you could see it. And you're like, oh, we use each customer logging on different TMSs. How do you network and having the IT capacity to do it? Because a lot of people, owners like myself, you know, it was me or, or I would hire someone to work with me to network on those things. But at that next level, when you're dealing with the Fortune 1000 companies, you got to have stuff ready to go. I think, I think it's tremendous insight, Stephen. The, um, you know, the amount of venture capital dollars that have gone into this industry to displace brokerages or at least to redefine them has been significant. We're talking hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars in the last several years. I remember the one of the very first couple that started, one was called Cargomatic, which they had to pivot. And now they're a sort of a broker focused on um, port to door shipping. They have automated about 98% of the transaction. And so when you think about that traditional broker, which most brokerages are, they're uh, sort of like gremlins, right? They, they come from <laughs> the, uh, the motherships, we'll call it. So the original 
broker, the CH, the TQLs of the world, they spin off all these these brokers. Yours was Freight Quote and CH, right? Mm-hmm. That you kind of spun off. A lot of them decide to just do the same thing that they did before, just making more money. But the problem is, is this industry is changing so quickly that those investment dollars are designed to disrupt those models, right? Whether it's technology, it's offshore, it's business model transformation, which to me is most important. It's network technology and connectivity. And so I think that your insight on that is there's a lot of brokers sitting in that under $50 million mark that have a decision to make. That decision is to say, can I compete against those VC dollars and those data scientists and those AI bots and the future of connected vehicles? Or should I say, you know what, I can't. And and how do I be a part of something maybe different? I'll tell you, it's a humbling acknowledgement that you have to go through and that you're like, when you build it and you have to be able to tell yourself, you know, uh, because the secret got out about five to six, seven years after the dot-com boom happened. And then you saw tons of virtual capital going transportation and it's even more, you know, every year you hear something new, you know, Uber, TransPlace, you know, going to acquire all those things. And you have to sit there and really think about that as far as like, okay, where am I in the pecking order? And, and, and it's not to scare people. It's not. It's just right. you have to give yourself, be humble and say, okay, I've been able to build it here. Are you going to be able to maintain that? Now, that comes from, you know, where you're at and what you want to do that factors in. There are so many factors. And like, you know, because if you want to stay, say you do want to make the most of your company and you, for lack of a better word, cash out. But, you know, I think most owners come back, like you said, after a couple of years, and it's true that they, they, they miss that day-to-day. Well, they miss some of it, is what I'll say. It's like, for me, I don't miss having to be responsible for all that money. I don't have to, I don't miss being responsible for my staff every day, making sure everybody's doing what they're supposed to do. But you do want to have a place. I think most owners want to have some sort of way to exit. And that, and discussing the exit, and that's the part you really have to be, kind of open yourself up and maybe not be so macho. <laughs> like myself and be, and, my and be able to say <laughs> and you have to be able to just simply you know look at it be like it's a big decision i mean not many you know some people only sell the company once or you know maybe some yeah. people do it more but it's not done every every year with somebody so you know to do it is like you really have to i would say really take a look at what you want to do to you you know if you're at the point where you're 60 or 70 and you just want to retire and you know live on the beach fine but if you're still you know like myself i'm like i i still like being in it do i want to be the hardcore that i used to be no i don't but i i gave myself an opportunity to still be in it and you know and 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 do and do things within the company and add value that's awesome. Well, Stephen, you've been an amazing guest, and I hope the viewers, I hope we get more listeners to listen to your your message. I, I think that your message to them is incredible, and you know we'd love to have you on again, you know, in the in the in the future. But again, thank you very much for being on the show, and uh, we'll call this episode one. All right, sounds good. <laughs> I'm glad I could help. Awesome. So thank you, viewers. Again, my name is Jeff D'Angelo. This is all about building the future of logistics. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.